This podcast has been underwritten by Cape Cod Healthcare because investing in the arts creates a healthier community. Welcome to the Creative Exchange Podcast, a series of conversations with Cape Cod creatives. This project is a collaboration between the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod and Provincetown Community Television. Recorded here at the Night Owl Recording Studio at the Cultural Center of Cape Cod in Yarmouth. Welcome to the Creative Exchange Podcast. I'm Amy Davies, the Executive Director of Provincetown Community Television. And I'm Julie Wake, the Executive Director of the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. Today we're talking to visual artist, writer, and teacher, Pete Hawking. And we're so excited Pete's Mm -hmm. here. Um, Hawking is currently based in Provincetown, where he teaches painting workshops at the Provincetown Art Association and Museum, is represented by 411 Gallery, and serves as a founding board member of the Provincetown Commons. Before settling on Cape Cod, he was the director of Red Island School of Design's Office of Public Engagement and an associate dean and director of Brown University's Swearer Center for Public Service. He currently teaches at Goddard College and Rhode Island School of Design. Welcome, Pete. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you in the studio today. Um, I met Pete, Emma and I went to Provincetown Commons a few weeks ago and we had the opportunity to to meet Pete and we were so impressed by your motivation to bring Provincetown Commons, which we're going to learn a little bit more about uh, later on, but I'd love to learn about how you got to Cape Cod. Oh, how I got to Cape Cod. <laughs> so um, as a, a kid growing up, my mother's cousin lived in Wellfleet. And so I would spend a lot of my summers here and also make trips out um, on school breaks and the like. And the summer that I was um, 13, my sister was in a car accident and my parents, and she was in the hospital for most of the summer. And my parents sent me to my aunt's house, uh, my mom's cousin. And um and I spent most of the summer there with her, and I had my 10-speed. And my aunt would take a nap in the afternoon uh, right after lunch, and it would always go until 4.30 or so when she would get up to watch the news and yell at the television. <laughs> and um, and I knew that I had to be back for dinner at 6.30, so I would get on my bike, and I would go from South Wellfleet up to Provincetown, which uh-huh. now as an adult feels like an impossibly long distance <laughs> yes. to ride on a 10-speed. But um, – you know, it was a, a kind of compelling destination for me for, I think, reasons that I didn't fully understand. I remember really precisely going along Ocean View and Wellfleet towards the center of town and having a kind of revelation of the, of how much I loved the place mm-hmm. and that I wanted to both live here and that I wanted to be an artist making paintings about this place. And mm-hmm. at some point during the summer, I, I announced this in the way that, a you know, an adolescent does to one's family to check things out. And I was immediately told that it would be impossible. It would be impossible, one, because there are no jobs on Cape Cod. And it was impossible, two, because I wasn't going to be an artist. I was going to be something else. And um, <laughs> and so I spent most of the next uh, you know 35 years fighting that in various ways. Um, but I had an opportunity in my mid-40s uh, to be able to be here because my teaching job is at Goddard College, which is a low-residency Master of Fine Arts program. So I'm on campus for two weeks at the beginning of the semester, and then I work v- via video conference and various forms of correspondence with graduate students all over the world. 
Yeah, so it was uh, a, a lot of like fighting my family's vision of who I was to find myself over time, right. but also um, figuring out that question. Because I think given what my parents' aspirations were for me, in fact, there wasn't in the late 1970s and early 1980s a lot of employment opportunities. Um, you know, they, they saw me going into probably the corporate sector or being right. a lawyer or something. And so it wasn't quite, it didn't quite jive with what their um, expectations for me were. And so it's been interesting to think about how to make that work and then also to think about it in terms of the changing economy on Cape Cod, now that the traditional industries of fishing and tourism have so radically shifted over time. When you were the 14-year-old kid, were you making art already, or did you go to Provincetown and see that there were people painting? Uh, what was your art experience up until that point? You know, I was one of those kids that was always making stuff, always drawing, always, um, you know, collaging, uh, creating things. In large part, that was in relationship to my deep love of comic books and that sort of um, sequential graphic novel and, and culture. And honestly, when I was that age, that was my career aspiration, to be a comic book mm -hmm. artist. But I also remember intently it, being at my aunt's house and, and making landscape drawings and um, uh, being, you know, engaged with the place. I know that I went to galleries in Wellfleet and in Provincetown, and I know that I didn't really understand what I was seeing, mm -hmm. and I didn't particularly like it. I mean, my, mm -hmm. you know, my 13, 14-year-old aesthetic was, you right. know, very different. You know, I, I recently listened to an interview with the British art, artist David Hockney, and he talked about growing up in the north of England in a very, very rural area. And, you know, he talks about his, uh, his only exposure to art was what he saw in books and then, like, the town sign painter. And he just assumed that artists, like, were sign painters during the day and then made, like, other paintings at night or on the weekend or something. And so I think for a lot of people who live in um, more sheltered environments, uh, learning the language of arts and, and learning one's connection is, is a big part of the work we, like, we have to do as people who hold responsibility for cultural institutions. Mm -hmm. I always think about like, well, what's the invitation to the person who's not initiated and who thinks that like art's not for me? Part of the obligation that I feel as mm -hmm. a working artist and as an educator is, um, I, you know, I was really moved, uh, this is probably 15 years ago, when I was part of a team that was doing an arts, arts audit of the city of Providence. And we talked to some people from Cincinnati who had done something similar. And they did surveys of their community and, and not their audience community, but really their community. And one of the pieces of feedback that they got was the language they were using around arts and culture was very off-putting to people who didn't have the invitation already. And it was misinterpreted. So when you said arts, people thought about like that field trip that they took when they were a kid and didn't have fun on. And um, when they heard culture, they actually thought like ethnic food. And 
And I think we can't take for granted the language that we're using in those invitations. And I'm a firm believer that when you're talking about music, you're, you're talking about the symphony for sure, but you're also talking about the rock and roll band at the, you know, the little bar around the corner. And, you know, we have to see all of that as part of our arts ecology and, and we you know, we're going to make choices in terms of where we put our limited philanthropy dollars and our time. Mm-hmm. But we have to understand that the, um, you know, the kids who are picking up a guitar in someone's garage and starting to make tracks that they put on Spotify or, you know, Bandcamp mm-hmm. or whatever, that's the beginning of something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and part of it is to say, like, that's really cool. How about listening to these 15 other things, too, with me? Like, mm-hmm. and then talking about it. Now, your um, transition from, or not transition, but your kind of um, development as an artist yourself into a professor of arts, <laughs> tell us a little bit about how that works with, you know, your career as, a, as an artist and a teacher. Yeah, you know, I fought with my parents, and I won the right to go to art school. And, and ultimately, I went to Rhode Island School of Design and had a really great classical education in the visual arts. But about halfway through, I I realized that there was part of me that wasn't satisfied by the studio experience. So I'm a fairly social guy. I like engaging in problem solving with other people. And to be a visual artist, especially in the education that I got, meant that like you had to be alone in your studio and you probably had to be suffering a little bit (laughs) if you were gonna be doing the real thing. And by halfway through my education, I, I really I had what I, I kind of refer to as my C minus semester, where all my classes I sort of just like sunk to the level of C minus. And that's not the student I ever was. I took a class that required us to do some field work with refugees of war in Vietnam. So Providence was a relocation center for uh, primarily Hmong and Cambodian refugees from the war. And there were a number of schools that were teaching English to speakers of other languages and doing economic development career uh, support for, for those folks. And I started to volunteer in those places. And what I realized was I was really interested in, in the connection between education and social justice, but education and social action. And so Brown University, which is neighbors to Rhode Island School of Design, was starting its Center for Public Service. and. I, the professor who taught the course that I was in encouraged me to go talk to the folks who were starting that. And and ultimately, they offered me a job as I was graduating to be their intern. And, you know, and I, I deferred graduate school to do that because I, I was going to go to graduate school to become a um, K-12 art teacher. And I decided that this was education, too, and it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Mm-hmm. It was just a year, and I was just deferring. And you know, four years later, I was the director of the program. And you know, on, on the eve of my 39th birthday, I, I realized that I had kind of made a career. And, I, and if I wanted to go back to this sort of notion of a life in the arts, that was the time I had to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I left that, and Rhode Island School of Design then hired me to kind of create a similar program there, and I did that for five years. And, and in that process, I became a professor of art along the way. Um, you know, I went to graduate school, and, you know, so. Tell me a little bit more about, I love that you just mentioned about 
artist as kind of the problem solver mm -hmm. and working with the refugee project. I mean, how, as an artist yourself, how did you approach that? Yeah, so um, the anthropologist Ellen Disanyaki has a book called Homo Aestheticus, which the, the theory or the, the premise of which is we named ourselves Homo sapiens because we value language and um, rationality but that given who we are as creatures, we could just have easily named ourselves Homo aestheticus because we make meaning with uh, our aesthetic engagement with the world by manipulating objects. And her definition of art is to make special that which is important, which I love because it's a really broad definition that encompasses a lot of human aesthetic experience and aesthetic impulse. But when I went to art school, I immersed myself in the aesthetic part of knowledge making and problem solving. Mm -hmm. And then I got invited to, to work at Brown. And I was incredibly intimidated because these are the people who invested in the language and rationality mm -hmm. part. And I, I, always, I, I went in with a deep sense of imposter syndrome mm -hmm. and thinking that you know, these are the smarty pants people who have read all the books and like, I know how to like move, move stuff around to make it pretty. And, um, and so for a long time in meetings, I would often be very, very quiet and just listen. And, and then someone invariably would say, well, Peter, what do you think? And then I'd say like what I think. And they'd be like, how did you come up with that? That's perfect. And this would happen over and over again. And I was like, well, that I just I feel like I just sent the, said the most obvious thing. And I had a mentor, um, this great educator and education reform advocate, Ted Sizer, whose father was the foremost art historian at Yale of his generation. And so Ted was really versed in the arts. And, and I went to him one day and I was like, so this thing is happening to me. And what? <laughs> like, he's like, well, of course, because you think visually and yeah. you problem solve like everything's on a field for you and you just see it and it all snaps together at some point right i'm like well yeah and he's and i'm like doesn't everyone do that and he's like <laughs> yeah. no 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 they were yeah. trained in the three paragraph essay they do it very linearly <laughs> right. you've got it all swirling around and then you pull it together and so um once i recognized that i realized that that kind of problem solving mm -hmm. that comes out of the arts um is a it is a transferable skill that um, and I think some of the mythology about artists being magicians comes out of this these parallel tracks. I, I, I have mm -hmm. incredible respect for people who are trained to you know problem solve in the scientific method and in more linear forms of problem solving. It's and I've learned how to do that over time. It's not my default. My mm -hmm. default is this more like chaotic, mm -hmm. like grab it and compose it thing. But I think that it, it that the way I solve problems often provides a value um, to community work and community organizing and public engagement, which is, I, I think, something that many artists are able to bring to the table. The, the, I think one of the differences between me and many artists I know who are absolutely brilliant is that I'm, I'm, I'm bilingual, that I can do both. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah. I, don't, I no longer am kind of intimidated and, and baffled by you know, this other mode. I can engage in both. Do you think that that 
creative swirl and snap. It's kind of it's kind of like that. Legally Blonde. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> the swirl and snap. Do you think that that <laughs> perpetuates that myth of the the muse and being alone in your studio and what you were talking about that had you sort of disengaged from the, the studio life? Because if people are thinking linearly and they don't understand, it does seem like a lightning bolt. Right. You yeah. know, it, it uh, they. I think our, our maybe our work isn't because we're not putting it out until it's more complete. I mean, so, so do you think mm-hmm. that might be part of that myth that's been, you know, the romanticism of the the brooding artist? Yeah, I mean, I think that there 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 are, there are a lot of things that um, perpetuate that myth, and some of some of those things are artists. I mean, because it's really great marketing to say that you're a genius. <laughs> and um, and so for, you know, 150 years at least, there have been artists who have been trading on this kind of mysterious, mm-hmm. like magician, genius kind of thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I talk with my graduate students about this a lot. I, I actually don't believe in talent. I believe that people have an affinity for the arts, and then they they develop skill through a lot of hard work, and that that like that looks like this thing that we call talent, but um, it negates you know for the young person who gets to art school and who draws really really well and looks like a genius or a prodigy. We're negating the you know. 18 years of drawing that that person Mm -hmm, did, mm -hmm. like obsessively in the margin of their textbook or whatever. And and we don't, we don't want to believe that is labor. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. You know, we have a board member, Carl Lopes, who is an artist, and he was also an educator at Barnstable High School. And they just gave him a plaque that is on the building of the Performing Arts Center, I think, or at the at the school. And it says it's not about your talent. It's about how hard you work. Yeah. So it's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And there are unique things that, you know, the, yeah. the affinity, mm-hmm. the fact that it's like drawing and not, you know, music mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, as we were talking about earlier, that it's like paint or markers. Like right. what, what's the, you know, what's the material that calls to us? Uh, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, we at Provincetown Commons, we just did this fundraiser. I'm going to make a little pitch for it, um, sure. which is uh, artist playing card deck. So every card is um, designed by a different, cool. uh, it's 54 artists in Provincetown. And, um, uh, and for it, I, I did, uh, I did an illustration. I, you know, they, they assigned me the, the King of Hearts and, uh, Lucky. <laughs> yeah. Of course they did. <laughs> no, no, no. It was, ra- it was a random draw. It was random? Um, I don't know. I'm sure no, of but it. but it was perfect. I meant more like, perfect. <laughs> um, I, uh. Um, and I, I went and I looked at the history of this card, and uh, which is fascinating. And the cards yeah. came from China and then got to Europe. And then there's several branches in Europe. And, and of course, when they, they were first being made, they were being hand-drawn. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the king of hearts is known today by people who like, think about these things as the suicide king. Is because the King of Hearts is holding behind his head a sword or an axe, but it looks on the card through um, small discrepancies in the drawing 
that it's going through the the king's head and is literally committing suicide. Where if you go back to the original drawing, which our modern cards are based on, you can clearly see the axe is like over his head and he's coming, you know, he's coming after you. And so I went back to that original card and I did a contemporary drawing that brought the suicide imagery in through, you know, his face is a skull, but you can see the axe. And everyone was like, I can't believe you did this. And I'm like, well, you know, I paint because I love paint. But it doesn't mean that I wasn't trained to be able to, you know, mm-hmm. did that with markers. You know, that's not going to become my new, because for me, paint is this sensual experience. And, you know, it, it it's in my dreams. It's not like, you know, markers never show up in my dreams. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, sometimes they do. <laughs> <laughs> and that means you've really got to run with it. That's right. <laughs> it was a surprise to me, too. But, yes. Tell us more about the, I love what you just said, that the paint is sensual to yeah. you. Tell us more about your painting and what you're doing right now, what projects you're working on or finished up. Or When I was in college, I had a girlfriend who was um, in Paris for a semester, and, and I went and spent a month with her at the, mm-hmm. the end of the year. So, And it was this just amazing, magical time. And, you know, wandering around the Louvre, there was this painting. And for the first time in my life, I, like, looked at this painting, and it's like a still life of, like, a lobster and, you know, some vegetables laid on a table, you know, of a moment. Beautiful, beautiful painting. But there's something about the lusciousness of the paint that made me want to lick it. And, like, I didn't, of course, because it's the Louvre. And, you know, I got good home home training. But... um, (laughs) Uh, it was the first time that I, I recognized that the oil and paint is the oil that we cook with. You know, it's not literally like linseed oil was chosen for oil paint because it's an industrial oil and it was cheap. But I actually work with a paint that's made with walnut oil. So I clean my brushes with a bottle of oil that's in my refrigerator that I also sometimes use for salad dressing. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, it's um, it's non-toxic that way, but there is a kind of – there's a thing in oil painting that if you put a solvent in it, like turpentine, you, you make lean paint. Mm. And then the more oil you put in it, it, the fatter it gets. And there's just something – like fat oil looks like something that you would be cooking with. Mm. So there is that kind of sensuality, which is always at the core of it. But th- from that also is there's this incredible flexibility with the material. And there are things that you can do with it that are different from other paints. I, I, I sometimes work with other paints, and I really respect that people have are, are drawn to other paints. And I hate the sort of hierarchy of, like, oil paint is better than other kinds because I don't believe that at all. It's, like, the material that you use, that you're called to use. Like, learn how to use it, like, for everything that it's got mm. and do the thing that you need to do with it. And you can do, you know, sublime things with any material. Like the wind set you ease and blow over mountain high and valley low. And it's one of those, you know, strange things about like like we have to think about the archival viability of paintings and mm. we don't want them damaged and um you know, they have a value attached to them. Mm-hmm. But, like, my life is 
all about touching paintings. Like you, you have to touch them to make them. I mean, it's the, it's an act of, mm-hmm. you know, touching pigment to uh, um, a ground, and you touch them to you know figure out if they've dried or not. And right. like, there's all sorts of ways that like I'm constantly touching them, and then I realize when you know it's someone else's painting, it's different. But it's um, like it goes through a doorway and it changes. Yeah, you know, you yeah. throw it on the floor. You know, the, or whatever, you're moving things around, or you see, like, the pictures of uh, Robert Motherwell with the painting sticking out of the the convertible, and yeah. you hear all these stories. And, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing that, like, where is that swap of from being work to being precious? Yeah, I sold the painting yeah. a couple of summers ago, and the people who bought it uh, wanted it they they were traveling and so there's this but the painting was still wet like I, I'm notorious for for dropping off wet paintings to my gallery <laughs> um, and uh, I work right to that deadline and uh, and so like it, it was a, it wasn't a huge painting but it was a fairly substantial painting and I'm like walking down like a mile down Commercial Street like hauling <laughs> this painting and like people are looking at me and but you know yeah um, it got there and it's safe and yeah you know. Yeah. Now it's archival in their, you know, collection. And if you bump it and smudge it, it's part of the process. That's right. So it's funny when you mentioned that because um, when we were at Provincetown Commons, Mm -hmm. which I want you to um, talk a little bit about, you had an exhibit going on there by an artist, and the exhibit was called Persisters. Oh, Joe Hay's work. Yeah, oh, marvelous. Boy, and and I think she had just dropped off a painting Yeah. that morning that we were there. It was, talk about wanting to touch those paintings. I know, boy, is she a painter. She's so good. It was very moving. Yeah. I haven't seen an exhibit like that for me personally that has been so um, resonating with me. Like, I took a bunch of postcards and kind of dropped them off with people who really admire some of the the women's faces that she painted. So can you tell us a little bit about um, not only that exhibit, but Provincetown Commons and why that exhibit was up and and what you're doing over there? Because I think it's really important work. Sure. So the Commons, we opened our doors to business early this year 2019 so and we did it in stages we uh we got our occupancy permit um right after the first of the year and opened in late january for people to use the co-working space and the the co-working space is for people who are telecommuters or work on their own writers editors video editors but people who would like a desk and would like to be able to use a desk in in relationship to other people and to work in community upstairs so that's on that's on our our lower level and then on the main level we have studios for seven artists we have exhibition space and two community spaces one is a community lounge which is a, a just lovely space to have a conversation and to hang out in and then we have a community room that can host meetings of up to 70 people so it's great for a screening of a video or a presentation or an off-site meeting for a nonprofit or a corporation that wants to do a little retreat in Provincetown. But it's also a great space for – we hosted, for example, 
Uh, Don Walsh, who is just a, a marvelous member of the Provincetown community, hosts the Day of the Dead Festival, but also death cafes where people can come together and talk about their experience of grieving and loss, but also to demystify death and dying as a process. So we have these kind of community events there as well. Staging area for the the filming of the new TV show that is based on the Outer Cape. Um, they used it as their staging area when they were in town. So there's a lot of different kinds of economic activity that can happen in that space. With our exhibitions, we want to be doing a number of things sim- simultaneously. So people who are resident artists with us in our studios get two weeks of exhibition time as part of their residency. We do two open call shows for anyone on the Outer Cape who is a visual artist and would like to submit work. And we're actually uh, accepting work right now for our winter show that will open Holly Folly weekend for first weekend uh, December. And like we really just don't have a lot of marker artists. So um, (laughs) I'm hoping, Amy. I don't think you'll know it's marker. Oh, there there we go. So full disclosure, my organization is a member of the commons and yeah. I'm also participating as as an artist in the area. So Excellent. And it's a, it's a great facility for for it just is such a multi-use like Pete mm-hmm. was saying uh, where you can do your business and then show your work and participate, you know, maybe apply for a residency and mm-hmm. it's It's really a wonderful space for the town. And one of the great things about the exhibition space is with our open call shows, for example, we have some of the most accomplished artists in Provincetown who are submitting work. And we have Mm. people who are coming from East Ham who will say, I heard that I could show something in Provincetown. I've never shown an artwork before. Is this really true? And we say yes. And there's a way in which by bringing these different artworks and dialogue, we're, we're, we're building these little snaps shots of what the arts ecology of the Outer Cape is, and it's really beautiful to Mm. see that conversation. The final thing we're doing at the exhibition space is we're curating some things. So Joe's show is a curated show. She and her wife Carolyn and I and my colleagues at the the, uh, Commons all work together to put that together. Um, I installed it with Joe. You know, it's really bringing work that does not, it's, it's too big, it's too monumental body of work for any of the commercial galleries in Provincetown. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's a work that's still new and still being made, so it's not quite ready to be put on the, the radar of the museum. Mm-hmm. But it's a you know it's it's museum quality work that hopefully will you know collectively be in some uh, you know collection for people to see over oh, time. I could picture that in the DC yeah. you know portrait gallery. That's what I said to her. Oh. National Portrait Gallery. That's oh, where that, sh- just, that work should go. It's yeah. moving. Tell us a little bit about it. So Joe Hay is a marvelous, marvelous painter. You know, I'm incredibly envious of what she can do with the material. She had a gallery in town for a number of years, Joe Hay Open Studio. She works with a a variety of subject matter, but over the course of the last five or six years, her work has had a very clear political branch to it. Her sisters is, I think, a 
It is a collection of portraits of women who are taking a stand politically for their values and a set of progressive values mm. that I think subjectively Joe is choosing to include in the series because of her personal admiration of the stands that, that they've taken. Mm. So It's um, very powerful if you get a chance to yeah. see it. It's an incredible, yeah. incredible show. Yeah. So I, I'd like to talk about your your process because mm. I was watching um, a talk from the gallery. Okay. And you were talking about walking. Oh, and yeah. And how that's part of your process. So I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. So, I, I mean, the first thing that I said about riding my 10 speed from Wellfleet to Provincetown, as an artist, it's really important for me to immerse myself in a landscape. I'm not one of those people who can be like, all right, well, I'm going to go to Rome for two weeks and make a body of work and, you know, I'll, I'll have this like Roman series. The landscape has to be in my head and in my body. And for me, I think the best way to do that, you know, when I was a kid, it was the bicycle, but now it really is walking. You know, being in nature and moving through it and being present to it repeatedly. So I have these circuits that I walk that are, in a certain way, they're, they're a little boring and a little predictable, but they allow me to develop over now a series of years an intimate understanding of the place. And, and they allow, like if, if you go to my Instagram feed, you'll see that it says this is visual research. And, you know, I've got, I'm like really fortunate to have a lot of Instagram followers who love Cape Cod. And, you know, and I, I will get notes from people saying, I follow your Instagram and every morning, like, I just look for the photographs of Cape Cod and it just helps me get through my day because I remember how special this place is. And so I, I recognize that right now as a painter, I, I'm really doing this project that is intimately connected to this place. And I, I also believe that the creative process is embodied I think we want to believe that writers sit at desks and type. And, and when I'm writing, I have to walk. And I have these little uh, paper-bound notebooks that I keep in my pocket, and I, like, scrawl things out. And then I go back and compose. But painting is the same way for me. Like, I, I have to be in the landscape and moving through it. And I think, consequently, people are like, there's a lot of motion in your paintings. I'm like, yeah, because I was, like, booking through there. Like, yeah, so... Walking, you know, walking shakes stuff through your body. It, it, it allows ideas and experiences to move through you. You have such an interesting balance because you've, you've talked about technology a lot, but then the being in nature. Mm. So it seems like you've kind of figured out the screen time versus the real time uh, experience of life. Like you have a, a good balance, a good handle on it. Yeah. I mean, again, going back to the interview that I, I, I mentioned with David Hockney. David Hockney has um, famously used all sorts of technology to, you know, from making drawings on his iPhone to back in the 80s, he was making art with fax machines. I mean, he, he really has been all in in testing what the limits of these picture making mm -hmm. technologies are. And um, he did this interview he, because he, the photographic work he was doing, when they were first developing Photoshop back in the late 80s, they invited him to Silicon Valley to get his input. 
and and he says two things. One is he said, "Well, this is the death." Of, like he said, you know, driving back from Silicon Valley, I remarked to my companion, "This is the death of darkroom photography, chemical photography." Mm-hmm. And then the second thing he said, which is I think really fascinating, is Photoshop makes everything really boring. <laughs> and and I feel that way mm-hmm. about technology, and and I think that there's a sameness. So mm-hmm. a few years ago, I taught an illustration course at Rhode Island School of Design, and and these are students who are you know they're they're, they're super smart. They're like and they're very hardworking, but there was a kind of sameness to mm-hmm. everything that they brought into class because they're using the Adobe Suite. And when I was doing that, and it was probably more than five years ago, it was probably like eight or nine years ago now. One of the things that I realized is that we have to move in and out of these technologies. So, you know, moving from the analog to the digital, back to the analog, back to the digital, and using the best of those tools. Mm -hmm. So I talked about the playing card that I made, Mm -hmm. and I I sort of fibbed in this sort of idea that, oh, yeah, I did this, like, drawn illustration. Well, I was... I drew it and I scanned it and then I printed it and then I put some paint on it and then I put it back into the computer and then I did some color adjustments and, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm moving in and out. But it looks like something that's made by my hand and it does not look like something that the Adobe Suites created. And I think that that's really important. And I think, you know, we technology, these are tools that we created to make our life more hopefully joyful and fulfilling. And unless we tame them and learn how to use them in a way that actually does bring us some joy, you know, it's it's going to homogenize us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think, again, this is one of the things that as artists we can do is unscrew the back and say like, how does this work? And what if I like, how do I make a scanner that's the size of this room? What do, what's that gonna take? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the interesting stuff, I think. When I was in school, I went to mass art and um, mm. architecture and we did that. It was in and out of, right. of technology. We had to learn how to draw. Right. And a lot of times what I'm seeing is the kids are learning on the computer and they're not learning to see and so are you seeing that i i mean RISD is a whole other level of student i would assume but maybe i shouldn't no i mean i don't think we should assume that you know young people at any art school aren't brilliant i mean they are it's so hard to get in yeah i mean i mean to make the choice to go to art school is to learn how to navigate the world in a Mm -hmm. in a in a pretty powerful way so I think, you know, these tools are being driven by efficiencies. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you're talking about, about learning in both realms, is it's eroded because the people who are buying architectural drawings want them fast and cheap. Right. And they don't want them necessarily beautiful. So I know. I always want to take my watercolors. <laughs> a layer of watercolors and vellum. It, it, it's, the, it's the same, it's the same thing with illustration. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, and part of that, too, is that the if you want to be an illustrator, the place that there are jobs is in the digital realm. So it's mm-hmm. game design and mm-hmm. animation and mm-hmm. these amazing, amazing creative mm-hmm. places to be making work. And so, uh, you know, to compare my education as an illustrator to what what the necessities are, are becoming an illustrator today is, you know, it makes me feel like to do that would make me feel like the crotchety old man and, and I don't <laughs> want to do that. But, right. you know, no one like I was trained 
that you're at 8.30 in the morning going to get the call from the magazine that you need the the illustration for the cover of, you know, whoever testifies today at the impeachment hearing, and they need it put in to the mail by, like, 5 o'clock this afternoon. So I was trained to make really fast portraits mm. or to make really fast editorial illustrations. That world does not exist anymore because that's going to be a photographic illustration. And so, you know, people who are drawn to illustration today are are drawn to a different array of things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we need to honor the fact that these tools have real applications to people's, you know, economic sustainability. I could talk to you all day. (laughs) Seriously. I have one last question, though, that we like to find out. And I feel like you might have already answered it through your walking process. But how do you take, you know, self-care? What's your self-care? You're a busy person. Yeah, I think that's one of my big issues right now. I mean, it's one of the things that I'm, I'm, as they say, actively journaling about. Um, (laughs) And uh, I'm I'm, I'm making some shifts in my life for 2019 that I want to have more space and more time. And one of the things that I recognize when I'm advising students is that I talk about the need for spaciousness in one's life, Mm. like creativity requires time and rest. You know, when I teach at Rhode Island School of Design, which has a real culture of all-nighters, like, and I generally teach in the morning, and students come in, and I'm like, you didn't sleep last night, and you're going to sleep in my class, aren't you? And then I have to do the, like, daddy talk of your, like, what you're doing is self-defeating, because staying up all night and working is not making you more creative, it's making you less creative. And so, you know, in my own life, I, I realized that I'm, I, I was saying constantly to everyone who asked how I am that I was too busy and I'm too overcommitted. So I'm making some steps right now that I can't quite <laughs> announce um, <laughs> on a publicly broadcasted po- uh, uh, podcast. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm making some space to have that kind of creativity. Yeah, I want to. Uh, the other thing that came, comes up in my journal a lot is like, I, I want to make some more ambitious work, and ambitious work takes time. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that I, I have a critique of the, the paintings that I'm making now, but there are some things in terms of my ambitions of new, new places that I want to work, new scales that I want to work in, mm. you know, work that um, is more experimental than I've been able to do in the last couple of years. So. I love I love closing on that. Ambitious mm. work takes time. It's so true. Yes, it is. No. It's very profound. And, Thank you. And yet, you know, we need to remind ourselves of that of mm. that in our own professional. Uh, work and things that we like to do. So thank you for sharing today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. With you. I love it. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to today's guest, visual artist, writer, and teacher, Pete Hawking, for this episode of the Creative Exchange podcast. I'm Amy Davies, the Executive Director of Provincetown Community Television. And I'm Julie Wake, Executive Director of the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. Until next time, arts matter. Support for the Creative Exchange podcast is made possible by Delbrook JKS. Music for the Creative Exchange podcast is the work of Jordan Renzi. Produced in association with Billingsgate Records by Jordan Renzi and Andrew Staker at Big Red Studios in Wellfleet. 
The Creative Exchange Podcast is brought to you by the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod, Provincetown Community Television, and the Cultural Center of Cape Cod in South Yarmouth. In the desert, to the oasis, this time, not no, this time. This time.